From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, and welcome to this bonus episode of Connecting with Walt. Yes, you're probably checking your calendars right now thinking, is it October already? But no, Craig and I are here bringing you another bonus episode of Connecting with Walt. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and producer, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I am doing great. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, enjoying the uh, Northern California heat. Um, see, we are, uh, we're not in the heat here in Florida. We are full-blown into the Halloween season. So uh, clearly, it is. It's gotten chillier. Uh, it's, um, it's starting to get spooky outside. Very windy nights. Uh, that, that really? Yeah. No, not at all. No, it's still still <laughs> in thought, the mid nineties and I thought terrible. Those, ja- those jack o' lanterns are baking into pumpkin pies. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes, they are. So that's that's the worst part about celebrating Halloween in Orlando is uh, you, after you carve your pumpkin, you only have about like a day and a half where it can stay outside before it's completely rotted and just just gross so it's very different from being a kid growing up and it felt like your pumpkin would survive for for at least a week but i've i've heard people who are from the the midwest or the north say that when they've moved like out to California, they they would carve their jack o' lanterns like a week before Halloween. Yeah, and and they were fine. They were fresh for Halloween. Out here, when they do that, yeah, you're right. Like three three four days, they're done. Yeah, so, um, now nah, it's it's tragic, yeah. but hey, yeah. that's like, mm-hmm. yeah, we carve ours like the day before, just yeah. to make sure they're fresh. That's essentially where we're at now, too. But uh, luckily, luckily, I don't have to think about that for another month. I can just enjoy all of the pumpkins that are around our Magic Kingdom, Universal, here, there, everywhere. You know, you can't can't walk two feet in Orlando at a theme park without seeing a pumpkin this time of year. Yeah, we have not. Disneyland has not started its Halloween parties. We we wait at least until fall. Yeah. um, and but so the Halloween decorations haven't totally hit yet. Actually, I, I, I believe the as of the uh, well, no, sorry, the event that we're about to talk about. The reason why we're doing this bonus episode, the first uh, Mickey's Halloween party will be happening in that exact same week out at Disneyland. So, um, oh, a little bit of a correlation there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so, yeah, since you bring it up, you're, you're probably wondering, why are we all here tonight, <laughs> or whenever you're listening to this? Well, Craig and I frequently talk about some of our favorite Disney animated and live-action films, which is why we are always excited when Turner Classic Movies announces its seasonal treasures from the Disney Fault schedule. Now, in the early years of the Disney Channel, uh, films and shorts from the Disney Vault were broadcast regularly, and now they're broadcast on the Turner Classic movie channel and perhaps in um 2019 they'll be available from disney's own streaming distribution service uh, if you've been following the news on that yeah right so yeah now now craig can you tell us more about the relationship between the walt disney company and turner classic movies uh, i will tell you about as much as i can right now because uh there are still a lot of questions out there but you may remember back in 2014 or 2013 and 2014, I don't remember the exact year, uh, T- TCM and Disney announced that they were partnering up together for a, a two-part deal. The first is that 
Disney movies would be brought to TCM during special Treasures from the Disney Vault uh, blocks that would be shown quarterly, usually based around a holiday or a specific theme for that time of year. And the other uh, part that would go along with this deal, of course, would be that the great movie ride would be retold, not not rethemed at all, but just retold to bring in a little bit more of the TCM atmosphere, have Robert Osborne added to the, the pre-show as well as the actual on-ride. And as we all know now, uh, it's been, been a rough month, but... Yes, uh, the great movie ride is no longer with us. It it closed uh, a while back, and we are missing it every single day. But hey, Mickey's Runaway Railway—that's coming at some point in time. But the reason why I say we don't know what's actually happening is a lot of the rumors were surrounding that TCM and Disney's deal had finally expired, and. That when that happened, that's why Disney was able to finally pull the plug on the great movie ride. I don't know if this still involves what's happening with Treasures from the Disney Vault. Hopefully, when this block airs on September 11th, they might say something about it. Like, this is the final Treasures from the Disney Vault that we'll be showing. Or or that they'll be continuing it despite great movie ride closing down. But I, I'm not sure what exactly their contract was how long it was for if it's still in effect and they just wanted to cancel early on the great movie ride part but regardless i'm i'm very much looking forward to this block like i i look forward to all of them it's it's some of the best tv you get all these classic disney movies in this case very disney movie heavy uh for the september 11th lineup usually there's a a decent blend of a, a movie or two as well as some animated shorts maybe uh walt disney presents or the wonderful world of color a true life adventure something along that line but this is like we're talking one animated short and the rest are movies so mm-hmm. a very, very dis- different lineup than normal, but it should be a good one. Oh, I agree. Yeah, and so in this bonus episode of Connecting with Walt, Craig and I are going to share some information about the September 11th, 2017 treasures from the Disney Vault films and the short. Uh, we're not going to really critique these films in this episode. Instead, we want to share some of the stories of how they were made, some of the little backstories, in the hope that it will increase your enjoyment and appreciation of these films. And, you know, we'd like to suggest maybe you get some of your other Disney um, friends together, you know, have a viewing party, you know, maybe have a themed party. There are some very definite themes that you're going to notice in in this um, lineup of films. Uh, you know, if you can't get Turner Classic Movies where you live, because we have uh, connecting with Walt, you know, friends from all around the world, uh, maybe you, you, you might have access to these films in a different way. Maybe you have them on home video, or maybe you can get them through live streaming or something, so that you can actually just set up this lineup on your own. Yeah, and I, um, I, I would say that um, most of the titles, especially the movies that are available, and a lot of the, the different ones that you will see in the lineup, you're actually able to find them through Disney Movies Anywhere, Disney.com, mm-hmm. and even YouTube. There's a a way that you can rent a lot of these movies or buy them. And then Mm -hmm. iTunes has a ton of them as well, too. So it's it's very easy to get your hands on these. Yes, you might have to pay for them uh, if you don't have cable. But that's, you know, that's that's what happens. But absolutely, you can get a hold of them. And like Michael said, definitely definitely plan a party with them i know i will mm-hmm. be watching along with the rest of the twitter verse out there and chatting about each one of these movies for as long as i can stay awake 
<laughs> and 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 what I I recommend to you can even in your viewing party have themed foods even because you're going to again notice that there's a, a Polynesian themed film and there's uh, you know there's um, a how there's some that are sort of ghost Halloweeny maybe yeah. kind of themes there's all kinds of things um, but what one sort of one's a, in set in a, sort of a British manner so you could have British you know so you could have different maybe. Uh, different courses that are themed to um, the sort of maybe the atmosphere of the films. And you know what? And if you really want to um, increase your guests' viewing pleasure, uh, play, play a segment of this podcast before each film. Tell them, hey, you want to know a little more about this film before we uh, before we watch it? Listen to my friends, Michael and Craig, <laughs> and they're going to tell you a little about it. And then play the film, then play the next segment of the podcast, play the next, then watch the next film. So, yeah, there you go. And then we can be a part of your party. Exactly. <laughs> so, so Craig, do you want to tell our, our listeners what uh, Disney treasures they can look forward to viewing on June 2nd? Absolutely. So starting at 8 o'clock, we are going to have the Swiss Family Robinson from the year 1960 at 10 o'clock will be kidnapped also from 1960 12 15 a.m you can expect lonesome ghosts from 1937 12 30 a.m you can expect blackbeard's ghosts from 1968 2 30 a.m you can expect freaky friday from 1976 yes not the 2003 uh, Lindsay lohan gem so get the original <laughs> and 4:15 closing off the night will be candle shoe from 1977 now the interesting thing about this this entire lineup to me just on paper last i, I looked through i always keep uh, a copy of the pdfs that they release on turner classic movies for treasures from the disney vault cuz beautiful artwork is involved in it and i like having the schedule so i can look back to see what happened last year and actually last year they did it on september 8th so very similar time of year and kind of like this schedule it was a little bit interesting in that like at 8 30 they showed treasure island and here we get blackbeard's ghost as well as as well as swiss family robinson so it's in also that year they had Davy Crockett in the River Pirates, which it's that's another one that that kind of feels very classic, very out of out of the way with September, I guess a little bit. I don't know. I, I just don't see how September fits in with some of these movies. But then, uh, oddly enough, I looked even further back to 2015 in October when they did that one and that one was like super halloween themed which i I guess you get a little you we get halloween themed here with the lonesome ghosts that one also played back in october of 2015 but they they definitely that lineup was a lot more a lot more like spooky october september october halloween oriented because they showed also escape to witch mountain frankenweenie mr boogity ghosts of buxley hall returned from witch mountain so i I guess we do have freaky friday with this one too which not soup i I wouldn't call that halloween but there's there's a bit in blackbeard's ghost you could stretch that too so overall Mm -hmm. it feels like they're trying to blend um they're trying to blend a little bit of what they've done in september's before with uh, a little bit of october atmosphere as well too Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's it is an interesting lineup. I know I was trying to figure out what all the connections were, and and I finally decided there there really weren't a lot. <laughs> you can say that again. So now, so sitting down, you know, all rested and wide eyed with your bowl of popcorn at eight p.m., we will start off the evening with the Swiss Family Robinson, and this is a a nineteen sixty live action film starring John Mills as William Robinson, uh, not not the Lost in Space William Robinson now, um, Dorothy McGuire as Elizabeth Robinson, James MacArthur as Fritz Robinson, Janet Monroe as Roberta Birdie. Uh, Sesu Hayakawa as Koala, the pirate captain. Tommy Kirk as Ernst Robinson. Kevin Corcoran as Francis Robinson. And Cecil Parker as Captain Moorhead. And you'll recognize a lot of these names from 
multiple Disney films. Some of these were staple actors in in um, at the Walt Disney Studios. Now, this is a tale of a shipwrecked family who built an island home in a tree in the midst of threats from the animals living on the island and from pirates. This is very loosely based on the 1812 novel by Johann David Weiss. The film was produced by Bill Anderson. It was directed by Ken Anakin, and it was shot in Tobago and Pinewood Studios outside of London. It was the second feature film version of the story. The first film version was released by RKO in 1940 and was not all that good. Uh, the Swiss Family Robinson was the first widescreen screen Disney film shot with Panavision, Panavision lenses. And when shooting in widescreen, Disney had almost always used a matted widescreen or filmed in Cinemascope. So, Craig, what's the difference between Panavision and Cinemascope and all that? Um, a lot of this is just how it is actually presented. Um with with the matted widescreen, what you're gonna get there is actual um what you're gonna get is that it was shot on a, a perhaps like a four by three kind of aspect ratio, so think old school style TVs. And then you know, uh, this happened a lot with the the Disney animated movies, uh, specifically in the sixties, is that they were all animated in four by three, but then when they were when they were shown in theaters, then they were actually they were cropped to to fit what was starting to become with widescreens. You know, for the longest time, movies through the forties, fifties, uh, you didn't have these big widescreen films. Uh, but then once that started becoming the norm, then everything changed. You know, if, if you've seen if you've seen a good copy of Beauty of the Beast, or sorry, Sleeping Beauty wrong beauty in that case um it, like if you've seen the the last i believe it was the diamond edition released and then it was platinum edition before but you get to see it in that gorgeous gorgeous widescreen if you mm-hmm. think back to some of the classics uh like ben-hur and the ten commandments it's not it's not completely cropped it's in it's in a full full widescreen to really give the breadth and a lot of this came to with westerns um, you know why why limit and box yourself up uh, to see some of these landscapes when you can see a big big full wide version so of course Swiss family Robinson with with the locations that were used for it you you can't you can't just end up cropping it and making it small. You you really want to get it in as wide as possible, and you know it's it, that's why it looked beautiful back then, uh, filmed perfectly, and it still looks beautiful to this day. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, and I was filming Third Man on a Mountain near Zermatt, Switzerland. Bill Anderson told Ken Anakin that Walt was thinking of making a film out of the book, The Swiss Family Robinson, as their next assignment. And Anakin read the book and wondered why Walt would want to make a film out of such an old-fashioned book and wondered what Walt's approach would be. Well, Walt was having a difficult time trying to get a good script for the film. When Anderson and Anakin returned to Burbank, they met with Walt to discuss the Swiss Family Robinson, and Walt said, Well, now let's throw the whole book out the window. Let's just keep the idea of a Swiss family emigrating, trying to emigrate to America. They get shipwrecked, but they are able to save all the things in the shop. They set out to think of all the things you might like to do, all the animals you could use in an entertaining way. Let's make it a wonderful show for the family, with all ideas possible. When he read their screenplay, Walt was so disappointed, he suggested reworking it into a 12-episode television series. And the original writer was removed from the project, and production on the film was temporarily suspended. So Anderson took this opportunity to reread the book, and he saw a brief mention of pirates, and he decided pirates could be the cause of the shipwreck, and could they could return at the end of the film for an exciting climax. And Walt liked this idea, and a new writer, Lowell Hawley, was assigned to write the story treatment and later the screenplay. But he found material in the book that he could use, And now, Walt was very involved with the story development. And according to Anakin, 
each day we had problems with which hadn't been solved, and we would come up with ideas. And Walt would latch on to something that we said and then come up with an idea which was usually far better than anything any of us had thought of. Now, storyboards were used extensively during pre-production, so much so that the second half of the film was drawn rather than written. Now, Walt had become particularly enthusiastic about the battle sequence at the end of the film between the Robinson family and the pirates. And during the story conferences for this scene, he stood and acted out the various parts of the battle and said, Yeah, let's have fun with it. Hit him over the head. Let him fall down the tiger pit. Now, in an effort to cut costs, Walt wanted to shoot Swiss Family Robinson on a soundstage in England, but Anderson strongly disagreed. He believed that because they were shooting with Cinemascope, so, or no, it was, I think it was Panavision, I believe, um, the stage would be very cramped because with tigers and other animals running around. Plus, the 1940 movie version had been filmed on a soundstage, and Anderson did not think that film was very good. So Anderson finally got Walt to put um, to delay his decision on where the film should be made as they focused on script production. So Walt continued to insist he wanted the film shot on the sound stages at Denham Studios in Great Britain. Anderson and one of his art directors traveled to Denham Studios to check out the facilities, and Anderson was even more convinced the sound stage was too limiting. So Anderson and Anakin decided to scout locations and flew to the Caribbean and discovered the island of Tobago. To them, it was fresh, beautiful, and exotic. It was ideal, but remote. They met again with Walt and presented their idea and, and a significantly higher budget. Walt said, I still think you should make it on a stage. If you get into trouble down there, it's going to cost you a lot more. Anderson said, well, Walt, I don't see how. Anakin backed up Anderson and said, well, Walt, I think Bill's right. We would get you a much better picture on Tobago. And Walt responded, yes, for a lot more money. Now, Walt finally agreed to having the film location on Tobago. And everything went exactly as Walt had predicted. The remote location and Mother Nature made the film much more expensive to produce. Anakin spent 10 months on Tobago, and 23 weeks of that were spent shooting the film. Three camera units were required. A crew of 1,000 was needed to build roads, kitchens, dining rooms, parking facilities, an indoor studio, a life-size shipwreck modeled after Captain Cook's ship, the Endeavor, and the three-level treehouse we all wish we could live in. Plus, most of the 500 animals used in the film had to be brought to the island by ship. Wow, I didn't realize it was that extensive. <clears throat> I had no idea there were that many animals. Yeah, it's, I mean, I guess... They needed them all just in case, uh, but wow, that's that's just mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, because um, yeah, Tobago is wasn't the island it is today. Yeah, so there wasn't a lot there. Now the whole film had to be post dubbed in a studio because of the primitive location. There was always the sound of a generator or waves from the ocean. When it rained, the noise was so loud in the makeshift island studio, the actors could barely hear the director's instructions. So every voice you hear in the film was spoken in a studio after the film was shot. 28 days were spent dubbing every voice. Yeah, and I mean, this with any movie made, there's always, uh, there's always ADR, which is additional dialogue. <laughs> Uh, recording and so that's not uncommon but to completely redub a film I mean that that usually only happens with with you know a foreign movie that is being translated for English um, or vice versa so that's that's nuts but I, I'll need to listen to it closely to see if I can actually tell the difference, because I, I don't think I would have ever picked up on that before, I, not knowing. I, I, I never picked up on it. Now, I've seen this film many times. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, the shooting schedule was slow due to some of the complex scenes. It took 14 days to shoot the sequence in which the family moves all the contents from the wrecked ship to the island. Uh, Anderson found a wonderful lagoon with natural slides and waterfalls that was used in the film, and it was a very expensive sequence to shoot because they could only shoot for three hours each day due to the sun. So it took five days to shoot that sequence. That's one of my favorite scenes in the film. It looks like so much fun. I always felt sorry for the mother because she was still in her European-style yeah. clothes. <laughs> so she couldn't um, go down the slide. Yeah. Um, the monsoon season hit during filming. Um, one day during filming, the sea came in during a downpour and washed away a lagoon where Anakin had been filming. And because they were halfway through filming the scene, he couldn't walk away from that location. So Anakin hired 400 women to rebuild the lagoon using sandbags. Oh, goodness. <laughs> now, when it wasn't raining, the tropical heat was so bad, crew members had to be assigned to hold parasols over the actors so their makeup wouldn't melt. Now, the spectacular treehouse was built in a large cotton tree on the island. Everything we see in the film was actually built in and around that tree. Now, because of all the animals used in the film, a special area was set up by the animal handlers to care for them. And actress Dorothy McGuire said it was almost like a zoo. When her children came to visit the location, the first thing they wanted to see was all the animals. The animals could be unpredictable and temperamental. One day, the crew members assigned to hold parasols over the cast members were reassigned to hold the parasols over the ostriches working that day. Um, When the tiger pit was being built, Anakin asked the trainer how deep it should be. The pit was made 16 feet deep because that's what the trainer said it should be so the tiger couldn't get out. The tiger jumped out in one leap and was loose in the studio for several minutes. Of course it was. (laughs) Despite all these challenges, Tobago did provide the environment and background Anakin and Anderson wanted. None of it could have been created on a soundstage. Uh, Most of the actors and crew found Tobago enchanting, and the set was idyllic. Many of them stayed on the island for several days with their families after filming before returning home. Uh, I think Anakin even bought property on Tobago. No. um, Because he enjoyed it so much. Yeah, I mean, I have to imagine it truly became a part of all of them being there that long. (laughs) Um, The film made many significant changes to the plot of the original book. Amongst them, um, the pirates and Roberta do not appear in the novel. A young lady named Emily, who was shipwrecked on a different part of the island, comes to live with them towards the end of the novel. In the novel, the family builds a number of structures, including a much less elaborate treehouse, but they ultimately settle in a cave. Uh, The novel includes a fourth son named Jack, who is third in order of age. Uh, Many more mammals in addition to those seen in the film, including bears, jackals, lions, leopards, buffalo, and walruses, are present in almost all versions of the book. Some versions of the book also feature hippos, rhinos, moose, giraffes. Um, Tigers, elephants, zebras, and briefly cheetahs and hyenas are the only animals from the book that are present in the film. In the book, the family is headed to Australia. In the Disney film, their destination is the German colony of New Guinea. Uh, Turk is the name of one of the dogs, whilst the other is named Flora in the novel. Whilst Turk is accompanied by Duke in the film. There will be no puppies in this (laughs) Disney film. Um, As Wald had predicted, the weather and other problems on the island led to unexpected expenses, resulting in the film coming in a million dollars over budget. Um, Bill Anderson stated, it was the first time a Disney picture had done that. Walt was not pleased, but he didn't blow up. As Anderson recalled, Walt looked at the first rough cut and he said, Well, it's pretty much what we started out to shoot, isn't it? I said, yeah, I think so. But you're a million over budget. (laughs) And he said, (laughs) then he said, why don't we just sort of let this all go until it goes into release and we'll see how it goes. 
and then we'll discuss it. Of course, once it started to play, I never heard a word about it being over budget because it was such a hit. The film premiered in New York City on December 10, 1960, and was released for the general audience on December 21, 1960. It received generally positive reviews by critics and gained large revenue at the box office, and it's one of the most iconic live-action Disney films. A criticism of the film was the massive pirate attack sequence and how Disney soft-soaped it by making it more slapstick than menacing. However, this was the intention of Walt Disney, Ken Anakin, and Bill Anderson, who wanted to maintain the fun tone of the rest of the film in this sequence. Altogether, the film grossed roughly $40 million, making it the highest-grossing film of 1960 and beating out other hits of the year, such as Psycho, Spartacus, and Exodus at the box office. Despite the success of The Swiss Family Robinson, it would be years before the studio invested this much time, effort, and money in a live-action film. The movie was re-released in 1969 and earned $6.4 million in rentals in North America. It was the 15th most popular movie at the U.S. box office that year. Wow. Now that's... It's... I mean... We, we've talked about it plenty of times now on this show mm-hmm. alone and uh, in other episodes, whether it was the Adventureland one when we were talking about Swiss Family Treehouse and uh, during the Disney 101. It's just it, it, this is such an important film in, in the entire Walt Disney Library. Uh, it's it's absolutely brilliant. It's just entertaining from start to finish. I, I love watching this movie over and over again and i'm glad that that walt was patient with it and really let it play out because I, I can only imagine what would have happened if it would have just been on a studio it it, it would not have been the same at all uh, it, it, they it really needed the creative control to go out and make the movie that they ended up making and you know i'm, I'm just glad that it it made enough money to warrant that Oh, I agree. And I just I think we all find that location just so enchanting. I mean, have, we've all, haven't we all wanted to live on that island? Oh, yeah. Know, I mean, and explore it, you know. And um and I think I talked about it on previous shows that, you know, it was this book and it was this film and seeing the film Treasure Island uh together when it was in a special, you know, in the summers uh, a movie theater in San Francisco they used it was very common for them to have the and I think theaters still do this you know they have the special weekly um, sort of film festivals yeah you know in the summer for students and at a really discounted rate and in those days you bought the tickets through your school and uh, and I saw Swiss Family Robinson and Treasure Island both one summer and um I enjoyed them so much, and I think I also saw Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, and I wow. enjoyed those all so much. I I wanted to read the books, and which much to the delight of my parents, and that got me into my love of literature, you know, at a very young age. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, and this is a film I can just watch over and over again. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I mean, it's definitely <laughs> rooted in the time period where it was made, but. Uh, it has such a timeless factor to it. This, if you're trying to really explore past uh, Walt Disney movies uh, from from the earlier era when Walt was still around when they were being made, this is definitely one of the ones that you want to show. I mean, overall, I you know, I think people would obviously throw in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea in there, um, Old Yeller, Pollyanna, Parent Trap. All of those great ones, but but to me, Swiss Family Robinson is one that sticks out. is is the easiest to get attached on. It's mm-hmm. it's just it, it's got something for everyone. It has the adventure, uh, the childlike wonder of living in that tree house, uh, it, but a ton of action, a ton of comedy. It, it's just all it, it hits everything. It's such mm-hmm. a good movie. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So now that uh, after watching this film and you have the Swiss polka banging around in your head, 
you know, you can take a break, replenish <laughs> your snacks, and settle in for another 1960 film, Kidnapped, at 10 p.m. And Kidnapped is an adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's 1886 novel, Kidnapped. Um, the film stars Peter Finch, James MacArthur again, and Peter O'Toole in his feature film debut. And it was Disney's second production based on a novel by Robert Louis Stevenson, the first being 1950's Treasure Island. And Kidnapped was directed by uh, the British um, Robert Stevenson. And although many press releases stated he was a distant relative to the Robert Louis Stevenson, the director denied these foolish claims. <laughs> Um, Robert Stevenson had previously directed Johnny Tremaine, Old Yeller, Darby O'Gill, and The Little People, and several episodes of Zorro. And he would go on to be Walt's primary director. Uh, he would eventually direct Mary Poppins. Um, Peter Finch was a famous actor in England and was familiar to the Disney studio since he played the Sheriff of Nottingham in Walt Disney's The Story of Robin Hood. James MacArthur was still under contract with Disney. He had already starred in The Light in the Forest and Third Man on the Mountain. And like Disney's earliest live-action films, Walt chose to shoot on location in Britain, and he hired a primarily English uh, cast and crew. Now, Robert Stevenson's script is very faithful to the book. Uh, in 18th century Scotland, young David Balfour, who is played by James MacArthur, is directed by his recently deceased father's letter to go to the House of Shaws, where he is greeted without much enthusiasm by his miserly uncle Ebenezer. There must be something about that name, miserly <laughs> and Ebenezer. Yeah. And he's portrayed by John Laurie. An attempt to arrange a fatal accident makes it clear that Ebenezer has no affection for his nephew. Since David is not sufficiently on his guard, he accompanies Ebenezer to a meeting with a seafaring business associate, Captain Hussein, and um, that's he's played by Bernard Lee. Uh, the captain lures David aboard his ship and shanghais him at Ebenezer's instigation. At sea, David learns that he is to be sold into indentured servitude. However, a thick fog comes up and the ship collides with a boat. Alan Breck Stewart, played by Peter Finch, who is the only survivor of the boat, and he is brought aboard and pays for his passage. But the greedy captain plots to kill him for the rest of his money. David warns Alan, and the two are able to overcome the murderous crew. Alan coerces Hoseason to put uh, into putting them ashore, but the ship founders, um, but David manages to reach land alone. After several dangerous encounters, he's rescued by Alan, who turns out to be a Jacobite, wanted by the authorities. And if you're curious, Jacobism was a political movement in Great Britain and Ireland that aimed to restore the Roman Catholic um, Stuart King James II of England and, and Ireland, um, as James VII in Scotland, and his heirs to the throne of England, Scotland, and Ireland. And in Scotland, the Jacobite cause became intertwined with the clan system. So, evading the soldiers, um, David and Alan make their way back to the House of Shaws, where the skullduggeries are exposed. Now, Kidnapped was released on March 25th, 1960, <clears throat> although some cities opened it earlier on February 24th. And critics in the United States agreed that it was well made, but the general consensus was that for an adventure film, it was rather dull. Um, there were also complaints that the story was at times unclear and confusing to viewers. They found all the performances excellent and a vivid Scottish atmosphere appropriate for the Stevenson novel, but they stated that many of the film's key plot points and motivations are unclear, and the film failed to arouse excitement. Um, British critics praised the film for its remarkable fidelity to the book, and the film was more successful in the United Kingdom than in the United States. 
overall, the film was not a financial success. And and, uh, and to really cap it off, it was broadcast on Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color television show just a few years after its theatrical release. So um, I've not seen Kidnap since I was a boy. So I don't when it I think probably when it showed on the wonderful world yeah. of color. So I don't have a lot of strong memories um, I, uh, of it, this film. And I've never seen this, so this <laughs> will absolutely be my first time. I, I love James MacArthur. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, whether it's Third Man on the Mountains, was Family Robinson right before this. I I really enjoy him and. Obviously, uh, Robert Stevenson is a very, very talented director. Uh, Johnny Tremaine, you, you know, you can argue the merits of that one, but no one's going to argue about Old Yeller. Uh, Darby O'Gill's another, uh, I think, hit or miss one. I I didn't appreciate it when I was a kid, but now I love watching Darby O'Gill every St. Patrick's Day. And yes. as much as I hate when I read anyone put it down on paper but it happens quite often a a good amount of people out there think that mary poppins is boring and slow and drags on and i don't understand these people but (laughs) i i read it i read it quite often i i just don't i don't know if they're watching something different but you know i i think while robert stevenson is talented definitely there is some uh, ups and downs throughout his career but I, i'm excited for this one it does it, you know maybe it is the loose connection with with something like uh with um some of the other movies disney movies that were being released at the time uh you know treasure island before stuff like that that people were just expecting a, a bigger spectacle than what they ended up getting but um, yeah at least i get to look at it through the eyes of 2017 which I think, mm-hmm. I think are good right now. Well, I think people were expecting it was going to have the excitement and flamboyance of Treasure Island, yeah. and and I and it definitely doesn't. I, it's but kind of like back in uh, right around 2003 when Master and Commander, Far Side of the World, starring Russell Crowe, came out, and I think deep down people were hoping for this epic that was similar to Pirates of the Caribbean because they both took place on the sea and involved British people in sailing and just ended up being two different things. So sometimes people just get locked in into what they think they should be seeing instead of accepting what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing this again. And, and I tend to like story, so yeah. I, I might be a little more... Um, I, I might be a little more accepting of the fact that it's faithful to the book. Yeah, so um, I'm just gonna make a pot of coffee for this one for sure, <laughs> just in case. So, so now at 12:15 a.m., the 1937 short "Lonesome Ghosts" changes the theme of the evening. This uh, 1937 Disney animated cartoon was released through RKO Studio Pictures on December 24th, 1937, three days after Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. This short features Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and Goofy as members of the Ajax Ghost Exterminators, and it stars Walt Disney as Mickey Mouse, Clarence Nash as Donald Duck, Pinto Kolvig as Goofy, and Billy Bletcher as the Short Ghost. Now, four ghosts, bored with having nobody around to scare, decide to look in the phone book and call some ghost exterminators to mess around with. Uh, Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and Goofy arrive and are victims of the ghosts' various pranks. Our heroes eventually frighten them off when they crash into a mixture of flour and molasses, which makes them look like an even more frightening trio of ghosts. The lonesome ghosts were once planned to have been included in Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. They later appeared in House of Mouse, the direct-to-video Mickey's House of Villains, and the video games Mickey Mania and Epic Mickey. And Goofy's claim, I ain't afraid of no ghosts, was used in the Ghostbuster films. And this is just a fun, fun short. Oh, this is arguably my favorite short of any. Um, I... 
this was something I think I was probably first introduced to it through uh, a Disney Halloween treat um, or whichever whichever version I saw since there was two versions of those while I was growing up but getting to see it through that it just it was something I, I did I, I watched it every single year and this played a lot on old classic Disney Channel as well and it, it, it's, it's so entertaining it, it's a lot of fun so I, I'm glad that it's getting broadcasted again even though it's it, it's a repeat for Treasures from the Disney Vault it, it's such a great short so mm-hmm it is, yeah, and um, yeah, and it was really when um, the, that trio was at, I think, at their height. You know, Mickey, Donald, and Goofy, yeah, uh, of, of their popularity, and and their um, and a good interplay of their various personalities. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, and just one of the best endings of any short. Mm-hmm. I won't ruin yes. it for anyone who hasn't <laughs> seen it, but it, it's a great ending. Hmm. Now, Lonesome Ghosts will be our introduction for the 12.30 in the morning showing of Blackbeard's Ghost. And this 1968 film stars Peter Ustinov, Dean Jones, Suzanne Plachette, and is directed by Robert Stevenson. It is based upon the novel of the same name by Ben Stahl, and it was shot at the Walt Disney Studios. The film was first released in 1968, which was the 250th anniversary year of the death in 1718 of the real-life Blackbeard the Pirate, who was um, born as Edward Teach. Now, Bill Walsh and Don DeGrati, who wrote the screenplay for Mary Poppins, adapted the book by Ben Stahl. And the book was about two teenagers who set the ghost of a famed pirate Blackbeard free into, um, you know, they, they changed it into a, a Disney-style comedy. And Dean Jones and Suzanne Plachette, who had starred in the successful Disney film The Ugly Dashund, were reunited to star in Blackbeard's Ghost. Um, Dean Jones was now one of the biggest names with a contract at Disney. Walt Disney himself cast Dean Jones in the film, but it was to be Walt's last film. Um, Walt Disney passed away um, during the first days of shooting in 1966. Um, Academy Award winner Peter Ustinov was cast as the titular drunken pirate, his first of several Disney films. Peter Ustinov portrayed the character of the pirate Blackbeard as a rolly and rumptuous, rump, rump, <laughs> rumpus sort of person, and very much different to the way the pirate was characterized in the novel by Ben Stahl. Elsa Lancaster is another Disney staple um, actress played by, playing the head of Blackbeard's Inn. The film begins with a prologue about the death of the feared pirate Blackbeard, followed by the credits set against footage of rolling waves along the shore. Steve Walker, played by Dean Jones, drives into the town of Godolphin, where he checks into Blackbeard's Inn. He just took a job as the track coach for Godolphin's lackluster college team. When he arrives, the ladies who run the inn are having a bazaar to raise money to save the inn from a buyout. In an effort to outdo the competitive football coach, Steve buys a bed warmer that belonged to Blackbeard's 10th wife. As gratitude, the women who run the inn put Steve in Blackbeard's old room and explain that his last wife was a witch and it cursed him to be a ghost until he could show a sign of human goodness. When Steve accidentally breaks open the bed warmer, he finds a spell book. After reciting a spell, Steve is able to see and hear the ghost of Blackbeard. The two are about as incompatible as possible. Steve being a mild-mannered man who doesn't drink, and Blackbeard being a selfish pirate who can't stand being sober. Um, Whilst taking a drive to clear his head, Blackbeard gets Steve pulled over, and due to the open bottle of rum in the car and Blackbeard's antics, he gets arrested. Steve begs him to give the ladies at the inn his treasure to save it, but Blackbeard is reluctant. After being set free from jail, he meets his hopeless track team, and Blackbeard's offer to help train them, since he has experience training a crew, and he thinks their success can somehow help the inn. Whilst on a date with Joanne, 
played by Suzanne Plachette, who is helping the ladies fundraise, Steve tells her what happened. Meanwhile, Blackbeard steals her fundraising money and bets it on Godolphin winning the track meet. During the meet, Blackbeard helps the team and hinders their competitors, despite Steve begging him to stop. When the issuer of the bet cancels, he offers to let them play roulette with their original money instead. With Blackbeard's assistant, they win enough to save the inn and fight off the casino goons. At the party to burn the mortgage papers, Steve has everyone recite the incantation so they can see and thank Blackbeard. Having proved that he can do a selfless deed, Blackbeard is free to sail into the next world. Now, the uh, flag flying on Blackbeard's pirate ship at the end is completely inaccurate. Uh, Blackbeard flew his own flag, which depicted a man stabbing a heart with an arrow. Uh, not, not, not exactly Disney um, <laughs> The one used in the film was a fa- flag flown by Richard Worley, another infamous pirate. Now, Blackbeard's Ghost premiered on February 8th, 1968. It was a critical and box office smash. It earned $21 million in its initial theatrical run. This success earned it a theatrical re-release in 1976. It made its television debut in 1982 and was released on video for the first time that same year. So, And and then there is a, a funny little story. There is one scene where... Dean Jones is uh, they're, they're using the Mary Poppins wires for uh, where Dean Jones is flying or floating <laughs> in the air and unfortunately due to an accident he falls on top of Peter Ustinov and um, gets blood all over his oh. lovely costume oh, and no. so they had to, had to do a, a um, clean up of that luckily Peter Ustinov was not seriously injured yeah. in that film so you, so you can try to figure out what scene that takes place in no i will i you know what i i didn't think i had seen this before but the once you started reading through it i you know i'm starting to have flashbacks of seeing this on disney channel at some point in time um Mm -hmm. i i can i definitely can remember the goofiness to it um it's even though you hear blackbeard's ghost in you think more along the lines of like initially i didn't do any research on this one for some reason but i i just it's i'm starting to have flashbacks for it i can't i can't wait i like i like peter ustinov you know it's it's amazing to see just what happened with his career i mean he he went from being an academy award winner in the 50s and then uh you know made it to this one which was a success and later uh, you know i another treasures from the disney vault that i saw him in before treasure of matacumbe yes um, i i love that one yeah so, so such a goofy <laughs> movie yeah. terrible terrible goofy it is movie, but uh and you know he's also uh, voiced in robin hood uh, mm-hmm. prince john so he just it, oh, what a wild career from a great actor! So this this one has me very excited. I can't I can't wait to watch it again that night. I think I think it's in the perfect slot too. Right right when people are starting to get tired, really wake them up with some some good laughs. Yeah, the, yeah. It, this is a, it's the typical Disney sort of slapstick silliness. Yeah, you know, and it, there's always a, a poor um, it, there's always a poor sports team. Involved in a lot of these nineteen sixty films, you know, with the monkey's uncle and and um, you know the the computer war tennis shoes um, series of films with Kurt Russell. You know, I mean, you don't throw away a funny. good trope. You no, just, you no. ride it out. <laughs> so now the morning begins at two thirty a.m. with a Jodie Foster mini film festival, starring starting with the nineteen seventy six film Freaky Friday. This was directed by Gary Nelson, and Freaky Friday stars Barbara Harris as Ellen Andrews, Jodie Foster as her daughter Annabelle, and John Astin as her husband Bill Andrews, along with Ruth Buzzy, Dick Van Patten, and Charlene Tilton, all very big um, stars yeah. in, the, in the 60s and 70s. 
The film is based on the 1972 novel of the same name by Mary Rogers, in which mother and daughter switch their bodies and they get to experience each other's lives. The cause of the switch is left unexplained in this film, but occurs on Friday the 13th when Ellen and Annabelle in different places say about about each other at the same time, I wish I could switch places with her for just one day. Now, Ellen Andrews and her daughter, Annabelle Andrews, constantly quarrel. And following a disagreement on Friday the 13th, Annabelle leaves to join a friend at a local diner. In sync, Annabelle and Ellen, who is in the family's home's kitchen, both wish aloud. Like I said, I wish I could switch places with her for just one day. Their wish comes true when they switch their bodies and their lives. Ellen and Annabelle continue to live their everyday lives as each other. Annabelle remains at home, tending to laundry, car repair, grocery deliveries, carpet cleaners, dry cleaners, her housemaid, and the family basset hound. Ellen attends school as Annabelle, where she struggles with marching band, destroys her entire typing class's electric typewriters, exposes her photography class's developing film, and leads the school's field hockey team to a loss. Now, Rogers adds a water skiing subplot to her screenplay, and neither Barbara Harris nor Jodie Foster did any actual water skiing in the film. In both cases, these scenes were achieved with the use of professional water skiers in long shot on location and cutaway shots of the actresses in front of a rear projection effect. Uh, which you'll will be very easy to figure out. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, yes. Um, Foster did, however, play field hockey in the film. Um, the day ends in a comical twist after the mother-daughter pair wish a new request to return to themselves with a new understanding of each other's lives. Mother and daughter forgive each other. Now, Barbara Harris and Jodie Foster were nominated for the Golden Globe Award for Best Actress, Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy for their roles in this film, with Harris also receiving a nomination in the category for the Alfred Hitchcock film Family Plot. The film also got a nomination for Best Original Song, Motion Picture, for the song I'd Like to Be You for a Day, written by Joel Hershorn and Al Kasha. Jodie Foster's role as Annabelle was markedly, markedly different from the other roles she played in 1976, Iris Easy Steensma in Taxi Driver. Th- there's barely a difference. <laughs> I thought, wow, <laughs> that is talk about I, night and day. <laughs> I, I will tell you what, though, it's I, I, I enjoy Freaky Friday. I, I've seen... I've seen both multiple times. Uh, fortunately, the original more than the the 2003 version with Lindsay Lohan, as I mentioned earlier. But mm-hmm. it, Jodie Foster was so incredible back then, and like it, I mean, she's just got great timing in this in this movie with the comedic elements and and some of the serious moments. But then w- watching her in Taxi Driver, knowing that I. I think she was just 13 yes. when she did that it just out of this world like it, it it's no wonder that she grew up and actually made a prominent career for herself uh, just brilliant to watch both mm-hmm. no i agree i agree so it's interesting how um especially when she was young she should she could convey emotion or humor or something with just a look yeah you know, no, she she had, she does that well in both these films. Yeah, you know, she she had that old school, uh, almost silent film style. She she knew how to to say an entire line with just a look in her eyes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Freaky Friday was remade twice as a television film for ABC in 1995, starring Shelley Long as Ellen and Gabby Hoffman as Annabelle. In this version, the switch is caused by magical antique necklaces uh, i've not seen that version i am not neither have i and i love shelly long yeah a film version as you mentioned starring Lindsay lohan as anna coleman and jamie lee curtis as her mother was released in 2003 in this film their bodies are switched due to an enchanted fortune cookie yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
My only problem with, with the original Freaky Friday is John Aston is the father. And I, I he he will always be Gomez Adams to me. <laughs> so everything everything he does just looks like Gomez Adams from the television show The Adams Family. See, uh, yeah, and I, I I do love him uh, as Gomez. Um, <laughs> I absolutely obsessed with The Adams Family. Um, it, just he's such an eccentric eccentric guy though so i you know i i'm able to i'm able to kind of look past just the gomez because i think probably the first time i actually saw him just like a very tiny role uh you know nothing more than a blip but uh, i grew up on watching the vacation movies and in european vacation the 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 game show where the griswolds win their trip to go to europe he plays the mm-hmm. game show host and kind of does um, uh, a Richard Dawes impression where he's like making out with the daughter and getting all <laughs> grabsy. And so that's actually probably the first time I ever saw him. And so that always sticks out in my head. Even even before then, I came to, to love him on the Adams family. But, I, you know, he's he's just such an entertaining character. I, yeah, he, I think he was. He was a great actor. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, he gave us... He gave us Sean Astin, who is famous in the Run Disney community. Not so much for his his Lord of the Rings work as Samwise, but uh, mostly for him competing in Run Disney races. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, hmm. he's he's huge. He he does a lot of the Disneyland ones. So, hmm. well, does he dress up as a Hobbit? He should, but no. Usually, he's just wearing normal, normal oh. running gear. But um, oh, too bad. I, if I could ever see him at a race or just in person, I would, I, <laughs> I would lose my mind. Sean Astin. I mean, Rudy. Mm-hmm. Amazing. That's what, what I was thinking. Yeah. Talented family. So. Mm-hmm. Well, take a few moments to swash your buckle and pour another shot of rum before another pirate-themed film, Candleshoe, begins at 4.15 a.m. This 1977 film was directed by Norman Tokar and is based on the Michael Eines film, or Innes novel, I should say, Christmas at Candleshoe, and this stars Jodie Foster, David Niven, Helen Hayes in her last film appearance, and Leo McKern. Now, con artist Harry Bundage, played by Leo McKern, believes that the lost treasure of pirate captain Joshua St. Edmund is hidden at Candleshoe, the large country estate of Lady St. Edmund, who's played by Helen Hayes. Having gained access to Captain St. Edmund's hidden will with the help of a corrupt former cleaning woman at Candleshoe, Harry recruits American Casey Brown, who's Jodie Foster, an unwanted foster child and hooligan into the plot. Employing her to pose as Lady St. Edmund's granddaughter, the Honorable Market Margaret Forth Marchioness of St. Edmund, who was kidnapped at age four by her father and subsequently disappeared after her father's death. Casey is the right age to pass for Margaret and possesses several identifying scars that young Margaret was known to have. Casey agrees to go along with the con and discover more clues in exchange for a cut of the treasure. Lady St. Edmund, however, is living in genteel poverty, and Casey quickly learns that Candleshoe itself is constantly on the verge of being unable to pay its taxes. Priory, who's David Niven, the estate's butler, who is forced to pose as various members of the household to conceal that all the other servants have been let go, manages to keep one step ahead of foreclosure by pawning the house's antiques, conducting tours of the estate, and selling produce at market. And four local orphans adopted by Lady St. Edmund assist Priory. Now, Casey eventually becomes part of the family and decides to find the treasure for the benefit of Candleshoe rather than for Harry. This nearly cost the girl her life when she is seriously injured, trying to prevent Harry from stealing the money from Lady St. Edmund. Casey's taken to the hospital, unconscious with severe concussion, and remains there for several days. 
Meanwhile, without the money Harry has stolen, Candleshoe is unable to pay its taxes and is within days of being repossessed. When Casey learns that Lady St. Edmund is preparing to go to a retirement home and the children back to the orphanage, she breaks down and tells them about the treasure. After unraveling the final clue together, the household returns to Candleshoe to find Harry and his crew tearing the place apart to find the hidden treasure. Casey, Priory, and the children manage to fight off the thieves until the police arrive, inadvertently discovering the treasure in the process. What happens to Casey now that Candleshoe is safe and her scheme is uncovered? Well, you'll have to watch the film to find out. <laughs> now, Compton um, um, Winates in um, Warwickshire, is the home of Spencer, 7th Marcus of Northampton, was used as the fictional estate of Candleshoe, and I'm sure I've mispronounced half those words. <laughs> um, the Severn Valley Railway that runs between the Midland towns of Bridgenorth and Kidderminster in the United Kingdom was also used as a location. Um, the film opened on December 16th, 1977 to positive reviews and was, by, was by, seen by some reviewers as a much-needed return to classic Disney family entertainment in the turbulent era of Watergate and the me generation. Um, the New York Times called it Dickensian Disney. Huh. So uh, I, I enjoyed this film. When I saw it, I thought it was a lot of fun. David Niven does a great job playing. I mean, he's up there. I mean, he's def- he's at the end of his career, and he um, he does a really superb job. I think playing all these different characters. You know, I, I yeah, I've never seen this one before, so this will be my first time. I I, I usually love the the movies that they put in this final slot because usually they are. Are some of the more bizarre ones, uh, just uh, ones that have haven't seen the light of day in a while for a good reason. Every every now and then, there's a uh, you know y- you want them to go back and not see the light of day. But yeah, between the cast and and the the plot, it actually sounds very intriguing. I'm I'm definitely all in on this one. Yeah, I have this on DVD, and it, it's a lot of fun. So I think you'll like it. I, I trust your opinion on it. We have we have a pretty similar taste in Disney movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we like them all. <laughs> yeah, and, and, uh, almost, yeah, almost. Yeah, that's good. Good. <laughs> um, well, and with that, a new day dawns. So it's time to fry up some sausage and bacon, whip up a batch of Mickey waffles, and pour yourself a glass of orange juice and start your day. So. Yeah. Yeah, usually at this point, I'm wondering, like, should I try to sleep for an hour or will I just like sleep through all my alarms then and and completely ruin my day? So just stay in bed. The thing. Oh, no, no, I do not get in bed for this. (laughs) I I made that mistake. Uh, I I don't remember what time it was, but or which which round it was, but I, I got in bed when I was watching live and it, it was lights out almost immediately. And the, the only time I successfully have managed to watch, watch um, any treasures from the Disney vault while I was in bed was during the second round that was in March of 2015. And I remember it exactly because uh, we were actually getting ready to fly out to Disneyland for one of our, our big events that you would, you would have been there too. And, uh, the entire group that was out there so that one's like always been in my memory because i remember staying up all night watching it and being so excited about it driving to the airport getting on a plane and then passing out instantly <laughs> i'll bet <laughs> yeah uh, well if in if you miss any of these films or your dvr is too full to record all of these as craig said Many are available. I think all of these are available on home video, Disney movies anywhere, and YouTube. And Craig, you mentioned iTunes as well. Yep. So um, I used a couple of very good books as references. Walt Disney and Live Action, the Disney Studios live action features of the 1950s and 60s by John G. West. And the Disney films by Leonard Maltin. A couple of good websites, uh, the Disney films. 
and um, website, and the Disney Wiki is another good website. Um, so we hope this very special bonus episode of Connecting with Walt will enhance your viewing pleasure and appreciation of these Disney films. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man, Walt Disney and his brother Roy. And Craig and I look forward to seeing you in October with a new season of Connecting with Walt. <laughs>